G'day and welcome to Radio Notes, where those in music talk life, and those in life chat music and more. I'm John Murch, and on my editing wall, there is a poster that says, Which Way to the Future, which was signed by our guest back in 2007. In the future, being now, they have a podcast with broadcaster Dom Knight called Welcome to the Future. Who are they? Well, let's find out. Charles Firth is a founding member of The Chaser, author of American Hoax and Fractured Fairy Tales. He can be heard on The Shot podcast, hosted by Joe Dyer with Dave Milner and Grace Tame, as well as co-host of The Chaser Report with Dom Knight. Currently touring with The Shovel's James Schlofel with a show called Wankonomics Solutionising the Corporate World. Between sold-out shows during the Adelaide Fringe, which is reported to have sold over 1 million tickets to its 2023 season, breaking a record for a festival event, Charles clocked some time with John for this chat. Welcome to Radio Notes. Hello, John. Adelaide firstly, and you had a chat with our Professor Longsword from Adelaide. Yes. So you've had the Adelaide experience. I certainly have. Uh, you, you've been probed, so to speak, regarding <laughs> the show and uh, the legalities of that, but... What is your impression of Adelaide in terms of this time of the year? We're talking about Adelaide Fringe Festival, WOMAD. Sometimes we throw in a car race. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it really is. It is the best festival in Australia by far. In fact, I think it's the best single event of of any event in, in Australia by far. The Fringe is so beautiful. It is such a... And it has such a geography to it. And I feel like, you know, there's... Like I come from Sydney and there's sort of no real geography to, to our festivals. We, we have every year the Sydney Festival, but there's no central space in which you sort of gather each night. And, mm. and we have Vivid, which, which probably does have more geography to it, but you're freezing and it's cold and there's a hundred billion people and, and everything. And, and the Melbourne Comedy Festival used to have a real geography to it. It, was, it. it had a centre of gravity around the Melbourne Town Hall and you had to go and buy physical tickets. So, you know, if you wanted to know what was on, there was no such thing as the web. You would go up to the chalkboard and see what wasn't sold out and go and get your tickets. That geography has completely eroded in the last few years and it's a real pity. And, and that's why the fact that Adelaide sort of puts on these amazingly beautiful spots, you know, both the garden and gluttony, but especially gluttony. Mm-hmm. Like, it's got a lake in the middle. Like, there's just there's no better experience in Australia. And on top of that, as you appreciate, mm-hmm. with a fringe festival, as some of those venues, if we t- take you away from the main mm-hmm. hubs, and there are more and more hubs coming up, mm-hmm. down alleyways, for example, there's like a wool shed, which mm-hmm. was near Frome Street. I walked down there. It's like this old building, which, of course, is part of that Renew kind of campaign. There were six of us in the audience for someone called Hannah Gatsby and Suzanne Post was oh, next to me. Wow. Let's talk music with you. You grew up in a household listening to left-wing albums. <laughs> this was a description you gave to The Five of My Life with Nigel Marsh. Can you talk us through how that turned you into the political animal you may have become? Well, it certainly gave me a fondness for that sort of... and probably a sort of romanticised fondness for the protest movements of the 60s and 70s. So we're talking Pete Seeger, Bob Dylan, obviously, um, uh, but also the 70s, like Judy Small. Do you remember Judy Small? Mm. 
my parents were heavily involved in the peace movement and the anti-nuclear movement of the, the 1980s. And so, you know, you'd go along to these large, you know, festivals that, that were sort of also protest rallies and, and peace marches and things like that, where you'd go along to the domain, there'd be 100,000 people marching for peace, you know, on Palm Sunday and things like that. There was a lot of, a lot of integration with local churches and things like that. I mean, you don't think of local churches as being particularly left-wing nowadays, but back then there were a lot of very progressive churches that were integrally involved in that movement. At those sort of marches, you know, you'd all sit down on the domain and then there'd be hours of uh, of music that would play. You know, like and people like Midnight Oil would come along and play at marches and things like that. It's just some of the most joyous, happy moments happened in my living room where we'd get out Pete Seeger and play, especially actually at university, you know, everyone would come over and we'd put on some Pete Seeger albums and sing along to them and, you know, imagine that we we're in the 1960s still. I want to reference back to Nigel Marsh's conversation. It'll be in the show notes for those who aren't listening in full to the other four items you brought to that episode that you had with Nigel. But you mentioned that it was the song. You had to bring a song and it was called We Are Women, The Equal of Men, <laughs> written by two men thanks to the ACTU. Yeah, I think it was about 1977 or 1970. You said 79, and 79, I'm backing yeah. you on that. Part of your mum's collection as well, that particular album. Written by Bob Young and... Arthur Sherman, maybe. Yes, Arthur Sherman. And it, it, remarkable. I mean, the anthem of second wave feminism, really. <laughs> we now lead nations. We now make the laws. We now cause sensations. Stopping wars. We will rocket to the moon. That's our plan. That's our plan. For we are women, the equal of man. We still need your caring. We still need your love to give to our children and plenty of. But we'll do it together. That's our plan. That's our plan. For we are women, the equal of man. And then it goes into a sort of marching band. Sort of thing. It is a ridiculous song, and I love how the men have written it so that we'll do it with you, you know. And I love the fact that at that point they hadn't been to the moon, but you know, there's a whole verse devoted to "We will rocket to the moon." That's our plan. It's so, it's so. Oh, it's just. I once ran for president or something at Sydney University, Mm -hmm. Union or the SRC or something. And I needed to go, you know, get votes and everything. So I put myself out there a bit. And one of the things I did was I decided to enter. There was a talent competition at the bar at lunchtime. And I decided it would be a good idea to put that song on, which I thought was hilarious, and come out with a a friend of mine and we'd do a sort of dance to it and sort of send it up, right? But it got lost in translation a bit and... Essentially, all the women's group and feminist groups turned vehemently against my campaign immediately, and I um, I lost the election. Speaking about women, you and this is the smartness of Charles who joins us today. You you actually wooed your wife with a dictionary. The Doubters' Companion was a book written by John Ralston Saul back in what the mid nineteen nineties or something. He was very popular back then. He's a Canadian philosopher, and I think for a while he was the the first lady of 
Canada. Like he he was the husband of the Governor General. Wrote this dictionary called the Data's Companion, which is a sort of Weberian take on all the key concepts in the world. And I used to love this. It was so witty. It was this, the wittiest book. So he defined things like the, the Big Mac is the communion wafer of consumption, you know, because actually it is completely insubstantial. It, it itself is just a symbol. But as you consume it, it, it transmogrifies into everything that we love about capitalism. You're buying a sort of concept. You're not really buying food. In the same way that the wafer of bread is is Christ's body. And so he just sort of, it was just a very wise thing. And yeah, yeah. and so I used to spend hours reading out the witty word definitions and trying to impress my now wife. What is the song that reminds you of your lovely wife? Well, we've got a song, For the Longest Time by Billy Joel. This now amazing composer who is, you know, works with Baz Luhrmann, you know, goes to the Oscars and, you know, is part of that team that's done all, you know, Great Gatsby and uh, the latest one was Elvis. I can't remember the one before. He composed for us a, a wedding march and at one point, and we said to him, oh, and, you know, like, um, we really like th- that Billy Joel song. And so halfway through, so it's a classical piece of music. It's like a three-minute wedding march. It's the most amazing piece of art. But halfway through, the trumpets break into a rendition of, for the longest time. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's a very beautiful thing. And I think that's just because we used to put it on as an LP when I was at uni and for some of the time... I was living in my mum's home and so we had all the old LPs. So most of the time when I was at uni, we would listen from L- the, all the old LPs. So you, and you had to get up every sort of 20 minutes. But it meant that you, you sort of had to pay attention to the music all night and towards the end of the night, I'd inevitably put on that song and, and Amanda would fall into my arms. Do mention there regarding this record collection, so I should go very um, rock whiz Julia Zamiro on you, and apologies if you end up on rock whiz. Mm. What was the first album you bought with your own money? Wow. Um, I mean, because I used to pirate, like... Mm. like You're the Napster era. Yeah. No, 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 no. I'm, I was no? tape, like okay. um, cassette Mixed tapes. Mixed tapes, yeah. The first album I wanted to buy with my money... It was probably a compilation. It was probably something like Choose 85, Choose 1985. There was a record store a few kilometres, like at the big shopping centre near where I lived. And we used to just, was it called Angel Records? I think it was called Angel Records. And you just go and hang out there all weekend listening to music and... You'd never. Oh, I swear, no. Actually, it would have been. It would have been the single. Cause, oh, in fact, I know what it was. It was. Um, so it was actually a little bit later than Choose Eighty Five. I think my parents must have bought me Choose Eighty Five. Mm-hmm. Star Trekking Across the Universe single, which firm. would have been nineteen eighty seven. Was it by the firm? I yeah. believe so. Yeah. yeah, that was a parody, of course, of the Star Trek theme. Was parody already in your life at that point that you got that single Star Trekking? That year which was year five for me at school, was a year where I turned from being a fairly serious person 
into somebody who relied far too much on making people laugh and laughing myself as my way of sort of coping with the world. So, yes, that was the moment where I fell in love with comedy. There's other podcasts that can delve into how comedy then developed for you, but I'm interested who those first comedians were. They were school friends. So Sean O'Neill, who was a guy in my class, or actually, yeah, he was in my class. He used to bring in Spike Milligan, like, books and things like that, and we would just sit at lunch and just laugh and laugh. If you're talking comedic influences, Peter Bowers wrote a book, I think in 1987, called The Little Person's Guide to Long Words. So his promise was all the words except for one in this book are real words, and they were just the most ridiculous words you've ever heard. And this was before the internet, so it was And like, this is before your obsession with dictionaries. Yeah, that's right, exactly. I must have always had a bit of... Yeah. They were just amazing words. And the whole challenge would be, like, you'd read them at lunch and then the challenge would be to slip them in, you know, oh, ma'am, are you feeling a bit jejun? Mm. <laughs> you know, whatever. must have been such a, uh, terrible wankers. <laughs> Point was, in the book he made was... You've got to go away and work out which one's the wrong one. So it means that you don't use the words lightly. Like, actually, it gave you a reason, really, a pretext to go to the library. Did Dom Knight release uh, an Australian dictionary encyclopedia? Yes, he did. And it sold very well. Yes. It was a, a dictionary of Australian words. Yeah, was like, it, yeah, was it a sexy dictionary? Could someone get quite amorous with this dictionary? No, no. it was far more mainstream. Sorry, than Dom. That. Getting back to those younger years, did you ever pick up an instrument yourself? So I played the piano and the violin till sort of end of primary school and the flute. When I went to high school, I don't know, I sort of, I should have just kept playing, especially the flute. I was actually not bad at the flute, but I just dropped them all. Like I just used that as a pretext to drop them all. What it gave me was good pitch. So I then just started singing, and I love singing. Like, I did choir all the way through, and, and I did chamber choir as well, which is like a smaller choir, <laughs> but for classical music in school. And it was so wonderful because I remember the year 12 person who looks at the marks and makes sure that, you know, you're going all right, went, Charles, don't you think you should just drop some of your choir commitments? <laughs> I was just singing the whole time. At school, and and I was like, um, no, I, no, I think that's what I why I come to school. I'd, I'd prefer to do well in that. And, but then, as soon as you leave school, like, literally, took me about twenty years before I then uh, went back and uh, Sydney Philharmonica every year do a choir. Like, you can mm. you can join a mass choir, and you do several rehearsals, and then they put it on in. We put it on the Opera House. And that one was, uh, I think it was Brahms Requiem, the year that I did it, a couple of years ago. And that is a fantastic piece of music. And you get to sing with hundreds of other enthusiasts. We had a conversation with uh, Jessica O'Donoghue, who's Rory O'Donoghue's daughter. Oh, wow. Who's an opera singer. And what do you think opera and classical music generally needs to do moving forward? How can it modernise from someone who has Mm. performed some of it? But I think it is. I actually think it's really exciting um, because there's such a there's such a link. This is 
based on I, I have no knowledge of I, so I'm not an expert on classical modern classical music at all but what I have noticed is the really great popular modern classical have a crossover between film and the visual arts and music and they're getting their sounds into into soundscapes and out to people through film and um, and so people get familiar with it and then you turn around and suddenly you're listening to a Philip Glass piece and you're going, oh, God, I really like this. This is really pumping. And you realise, oh, no, that was in a... That was in an episode of, you know, blah, blah. Or, you know, actually, there was one the other day, Max Richter, who I love, like, who does some really witty things with classical music. Like, he he released, um, you know, Vivaldi's Four Seasons. He updated it, and he actually changed the rhythms of that piece. He, he did what C.P.E. Bach did to, to J.S. Bach. Do you know much about... Walk, walk us through this because at the moment I'm imagining that Max Richter has done a Melbourne version of Four Seasons called Whatever Season It Is, It's Not The One You Want. <laughs> he, it's a really great... I took my sons to see it at the Opera House last year. Okay. And some of the, you know, um, movements <clears throat> sound very familiar. Like it starts out where you're going, oh, yeah, this sounds a bit like the Four Seasons. And then suddenly it's in 3-4 or something rather than 4-4. Four, four. And... Suddenly, there's sort of syncopation. It gives a whole new energy to it, and and it really, it's, it's sort of similar soundscape to Philip Glass or something like that. But the reason why I mentioned Bach is J. S. Bach. He's the famous Bach. When he was writing his music, he actually was pretty daggy, right? And it was very disposable music. Like you know, famously, forty years later, a lot of his pieces were recovered because some music teacher found. The kids in his class were, were wrapping their lunches in old music hmm. thing, and it was all just J.S. Bach music that because he'd just rock up on a Sunday and do some jazz riffs and, hmm. and write it down, but you know, it'd be never thought of again. But what he, one of his sons did, he had about a hundred billion sons, and he gave like his least talented son ended up inheriting um, all the sort of wealth and 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 all the support of his dad, institutional support, right. and sort of wrote very similar-sounding, quite boring stuff. But there was this other guy, other son, C.P.E. Bach, who I think actually fell out with his dad, who modernised it and made it like a Philip Glass or, or Max Richter style. And you listen to it and you go, that is modern classical music. Like <laughs> It's sort of largely forgotten as well. Like It's not like we sort of... Um, you know, go, oh, yeah, Bach, CPE, he's my favourite. Anyway, getting back to Max Richter, you know, I was watching an episode of The Last of Us, that famous episode three, beautiful um, episode. And at the end, you know, there's a fairly sad but uplifting end. And suddenly you see this Max Richter riff comes in and it's like, we heard that at the opera house. And it's like, oh, that's what the, the, the modern classical composers are doing is... They're actually getting into our consciousness very effectively. And you might not know it, but you probably are a fan of modern classical music in a way that wasn't really true 20 or 30 years ago. Speaking about going out and seeing music, live music. Hmm. What's been one of those memorable live music experiences? Well, we decided, because I went and lived in the US for a couple of years, sort of in my 
late 20s. And we decided to go and see all the classics that we could, like, you know, make sure you see Elton John and Billy Joel and Paul McCartney and all those sorts of things. And they are all rocking great stars. Like, probably the best concert I've ever been to was, and I know this is weird because I wouldn't normally pick it, but Paul McCartney is very charismatic on stage for some reason. But in terms of, so that in terms of like, you know, impressive people, mm. that's amazing. But there's been like, to be honest, the most joyous concerts I've been to have been pub gigs where your friends are playing. Like Andrew Hansen um, and actually Dom was in occasionally in that band. No, it was it was Andrew Hansen, Tom Gleeson, James Fletcher, and Cameron Bruce who now um, tours with Paul Kelly. But they had a band for several years called the Fantastic Leslie in the sort of late 1990s in the Sydney pub scene. They were just fantastic nights because it would be hundreds and hundreds of fans turning up. You get out on the dance floor. I mean, they were playing the places that are now just pokey places. They're the ones that I remember most fondly because they're your friends and they're making great music. I was reminded that Chaser, the TV show, for which we were a founding member thereof, had both Quan of Regurgitator and Tim Rogers of UMI (laughs) basically smashing the proverbial out of a couple of guitars for points. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, it was good. Rock and roll. Yeah, it was rock and roll. It was. Hi, I'm Rishi K. Sherway. And I'm Joshua Molina. We're from the West Wing Weekly, and you're currently listening to Radio Notes. Radio Notes, where those in music talk life, and those in life chat music and more. You can join us on The West Wing Weekly for an episode-by-episode breakdown of the television show The West Wing. Josh was the star of the show, and we give you behind-the-scenes insights and deep dives into the issues raised in the storylines of the show. You can find us on radiotopia.fm or through your favorite podcaster. For now, back to John Merch and Radio Notes. We're currently in conversation with Charles Firth, founding member of The Chaser, currently touring with Wankonomics with one of the members of The Shovel. And also check out The Shot podcast as well with Joe Dyer, Grace Tame, and a number of great talented people as well. You're listening to Radio Notes. Let's talk about satire and music. Mm. Is there a working relationship between the two? You did jump the gun a little for me and mention Andrew Hansen. Can you talk to us about satire and music and how particularly, I guess, with The Chaser and what you're producing in that umbrella, Mm. how the two relate. They work really well together. And I think it's because, you know, satire is not a very emotional form of art. It's actually, it triggers your sort of frontal cortex and your, you know, your rational side and your cognitive brain. But mixing it with something that's more emotional, like a rocking great tune actually gives you a whole of mind experience that actually works much better. Like Andrew and I wrote several songs in the tune. Although actually one of the ones that actually went quite well, but I helped write the tune for as well. But, you know, like we'd combine forces on the lyrics and that often spurred out quite fast, right? Like when you're writing songs, there is a sort of, an intuitiveness to 
the like they've got to actually match with the emotional rhythms of the tune and stuff like that. So it's quite a it's an interesting process to to write, but they're not. You can edit songs a bit once you've written, like the lyrics of songs once you've written them, but actually, they in my experience they tend to you know fall out fairly fully formed. Like that's been my experience whenever I've written songs with people. Ever been a drive because there is the Radio Chaser stuff that has a bit of musical element to it, and Andrew mm. Hansen released his songs over the time. But has there ever been a tour de force to do more music? Well, I appointed. Gabby Bolt, who's a young musical comedian, incredibly talented, as a chaser intern a couple of years ago. Sellout shows at the Adelaide French. Yes, exactly. Five-star reviews. Odd Sock was the name of her show this year. So she would write songs for us and, you know, like send her a first draft of a song, you know, just to try and, many ways just to provoke a response and she'd always come back with something 10 times better and you know more in her voice and stuff like that i would say that all the best satirical songs though like they are rare they are rare you can write like gabby can write a hundred songs and then out of those there'll be six gold and she does she writes a hundred songs and then there are six that actually just absolutely you know become you know, you just go, that is, that's still going to be sung in 20 years' time. Andrew Hansen did musical stuff in the past and now mm. is sort of solo. Mm. Is Gabby the new chaser music go-to person? Gabby's got her own trajectory, I think. It, look, oh, we've invited her back to tour with us at the end of this year with the War on 2023 tour. But, you know, as it, she's got an agent now. As her agent says, we'll have to wait until after March. So... You know, watch this space. I mean, her career's going like that. It's sort of the story of my life, which is fall in love with these wonderful, talented young comedians and then watch them skyrocket past me. We don't have to (laughs) say who, but same with radio producers. I know how you feel. Yes, I know. You wouldn't want it any other way. Like, I think that's the whole point is you want people to sort of follow their own paths. And I'm not sure. I mean, Gabby is such a sort of unique being like i think she's her own voice to be Mm. honest you know you don't want it to be the chasers gabby ball you want it to be i mean i'm so glad that she was part of the team for a while but it's sort of like you just go yeah let her be whatever she wants to be the core of that question about music in the future for the chaser and it sounds like there always has been every now and again a home for it Mm. when the narrative suits Yes. So you're yes. not actively seeking to have a musical outfit who's part of the chaser. No, no. And I think I think that's right. I think all the best sort of integrations of song into our screen stuff has been when you know I, I, I just hark back to CNN and N. We had this episode which actually I think won an AFI or something, which was the called the Tilt Australia campaign. And the whole idea was there was a drought on in Australia. And at that time, a whole lot of sort of right-wing radio shock jocks and rich <coughs> capitalists had got together and they'd announced some fund to solve Australia's drought by, I don't know, putting on an ad campaign or something like that. And so we took that idea and we created the Tilt Australia campaign, which was to literally solve Australia's drought by tilting Australia 
so that the water that was in the north would run south. And Andrew and I wrote the, well, he wrote the song, I wrote the lyrics with him, which was, let's tilt Australia, turn the nation round, let's tilt Australia and grow things from the ground. So lend a hand to tilt it, the answer is quite clear, because Australia without water is like a pub without beer. And we got, we did it as a whole campaign anthem. And we got celebrities and everything to all tilt to the music. And it, it was just a wonderful parody of terribly badly thought out marketing campaigns. I think that's the best integration is when the music is serving the broader satirical purpose. We've already mentioned Star Trekking, which is a parody, but generally, what's your view on parody and its place? Well, particularly we, musically speaking. Who is the best musician in the world? Weird Al Yankovic, the nicest guy, never had a scandal. He's, he's the most enduring. He's just had hit after hit after hit. He's just. Well, that answers your question. And he and he's perfect. He's perfect. Like my kids love him. I, it, my kids love the same songs that I loved of his mm. 20, 30 years ago. With all the experience you have in and around television, and as one of the founding members of The Chaser who know whether or not it can and can't work, could Australia have a late-night variety show that could include live musical acts again? TV doesn't really exist anymore in right. that format so uh, maybe not a free-to-air tv broadcast show i can imagine a version of that you know being done on a youtube live or something like i can i can imagine there is possible to think of forms that would mimic that sort of thing but yeah it's over for free-to-air like it's and and it's over for everyone watching broadcast television at the same time that's why i say i think it would have to be something that mm. that where the synchronization of experience which i think is key to those sorts of formats because it's about the frisson of being live and therefore slightly dangerous i think it would have to happen in concert with somewhere online i think even if a broadcast i mean thinking about it I think as, you know, TV has abated, the audiences got older. And so actually programmers are far more conservative and all the radical stuff is moving behind paywalls onto the streaming services and things like that. But I can imagine a time when some bright spark, possibly at the ABC, real or maybe SBS, hmm. realises that there's actually... There's a land grab to be had or an audience grab to be had in being a bit dangerous again. Um, Just turning yeah. on the switch and walking in and... Yeah, yeah. And studio director for the first, I don't know, 10 years of Q&A, his name's Mark Fitzgerald. He was the Chasers studio director as well back in the day. But he always maintained that Q&A would be much better if it also had a, a live band, mm. Right. Because uh, Mark, you know, Mark's the voice who is the scream on Rage. Like, he's, he's that guy, right? Like he loves he's his music. He's been around. Yeah. yeah, he's been around. 
And he's right, because even just the presence of a band in a room, even if you only have the band actually playing a whole song right at the end of the show, mm. changes the whole nature, the feeling of the space. And that is what I think Fran Kelly got right with Frankly, mm. is because there was a house band. Yes. Had a band, yes. so it was that engagement. It would not surprise me if Mark Fitzgerald did not have a conversation with somebody, and a um, little whisper, a little whisper about the need for a band. Mind you, I think I'm sure Fran could have come up with that herself. I do want to ask you because, as part of the War on series, you did tour with Mark Humphreys, yes, who I want to talk to about uh, Sondheim yes, and yes. musicals. He won Mastermind with, with that special. There's any musical yarns between you and Mark Humphreys, without speaking out of school, that you'd like to share with us? Well, he took me to the premiere of Town the other day. He, he's got a Twitter account called Mark's Musicals. Yes. There's the Mark Humphreys that you see on 7.30 who does the satirical sketches. And then there's Mark, <laughs> the musical guy. <laughs> The thing is, you know, red carpet premiere and he's chatting to everyone. Who was that? Oh, that's the director of the show. Who's that? Oh, that's the producer. Like, he knows everyone. It's just amazing. We go to this production because I love Urinetown. Have you ever seen Urinetown? I think I may have, but... Yeah. Well, it started on off-off Broadway and then went up to Broadway. I saw the Broadway production of it, the Tony-winning Broadway production of it. So, and it was in the Sydney show, was sort of 15 years later, a bit of a reinterpretation. Is there a particular musical that really grabs you and speaks to you? You're in town, definitely. I mean, I, I love all the, I mean, there were so many good music. I love them all, like, especially the funny ones. So, Avenue Q would be in my top five. Um, I mean, like, I'm a sucker because I was always in the musicals at school. First one was Princess Ida, which is a bit of a dud of a Gilbert and Sullivan. But, oh, I enjoyed it. You know. And then we did Pirates of Penzance, which was great. And then there was some drug scandal and the teacher was sacked. So we didn't do Gilbert and Sullivan after that. We did South Pacific after that, actually, just thinking about it. That's a great music. I mean, that's a silly musical. But, uh, you know, I've spent many a drunken night singing tunes from South Pacific with Mark Humphreys in karaoke back alleys. Charles Firth, what's your go-to karaoke song? I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston. When I first did karaoke in front of my wife, um, she wasn't my wife, she was, we were barely going out, I put on I Will Always Love You and sang it to her thinking it was romantic. And this was in front of all her university friends. Mm-hmm. And... She got so angry and humiliated and stormed out. And I thought it was very touching because uh, you get to do falsetto. It's really nice. But you've got to, I mean, any Billy Joe, any old classic 1980s ballad is going to be fantastic at karaoke. What can people expect at a, a War on 2023 type tour? Well, actually, we're thinking of changing the name this year. Like, it's actually the funniest headlines of the year, hmm. plus some sketches by, you know, Gabby and Mark and James and me, right? But essentially, it's that was the year that was. 
is the sort of concept behind it. And it's a really good show. Like, because actually what it does is it distills all the chaser headlines and all the shovel headlines from the year into a tight 40 or 50 minutes and then bolsters it all with... Like, last year we had a whole lot of songs from Gabby sprinkled mm-hmm. throughout the show. It was just a rollicking great show. So Charles Firth, thanks very much for joining Radio Notes. <laughs> thanks, John. Charles Firth, a founding member of The Chaser, author of American Hoax and Fractured Fairy Tales, both available at thechaser.com.au. Wankonomics continues their live tour and are available for corporate gigs. Details at theantiexperts.com. Thanks very much to Charles Firth for being our feature guest today. The War on 2023 has the additional title of the Annual Comedy Gala and tickets available through November and December 2023. for show notes and links. Web design there by Steve Davis. Theme music by Martin Kennedy and All India Radio. I'm Tammy Weller. John Merch is the producer and host based in Adelaide, South Australia. 